Five scores! Rick Bod. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Bod. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome everyone to episode 112 of the Squid and Ultimate Leafs fan show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Join him as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's things? Things aren't too bad, Mike. Just preparing for Sweden tomorrow and uh, getting packed up and ready to go. Well, maybe give Looking listeners a little it. idea why you're going to Sweden. Well, we're, we're playing a, a hockey game that's going to be broadcast across the whole country of Sweden. And it benefits the, uh, I, I don't know if it's the Boreas Solving Foundation for ALS or the ALS Foundation. I'm not really 100% sure. But what we're doing is good, and uh, we're going to, you know, help people uh, with ALS, hopefully. Well, we're bookending a lot of things uh, from your past with the Maple Leafs. Uh, Borea on the weekend, and today we're speaking with uh, about a subject that was very near and dear to you, and we have a couple of very special guests with us today. Uh, our, well, just no particular order. The first guy, I guess, to lead this off was what founded Lone Eagle Entertainment in 1996 and became an award-winning producer of shows such as You Gotta Eat Here, Pop Stars, Game On, Get a Grip on Golf. That'd be a good one for you and I. Uh, just to mention a few, but we're very interested in his latest venture, Offside the Harold Ballard Story. So please welcome Michael Geddes. Michael, first off, thanks for joining us and how's it going? Excellent. Good to be here, guys. And, uh, Excited about uh, Ultimate Lease Fan today. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we, we get that all the time. And our second guy, though, the second guy was a Vancouver fan. Now, Squid, that goes back to your days of Vancouver. But I would be remiss if I didn't say he was best known for playing a teenage heartthrob, Brandon Walsh, on the very popular series in the 1990s, Beverly Hills 90210. He starred in Call Me Fritz, another Canadian series, Private Eyes. And he has too many roles and commercials to mention. But today we want to discuss his role as director and narrator of Offside the Harold Ballard story. Also, Jason Priestley, thanks for joining us. And how's it going, Jason? Yeah, you got it, guys. Good to see everybody. Now, you know, sorry, Jason, you know, before we start, you have a film resume as long as your arm. Ironically, Harold <laughs> references something in that doc in the documentary to that effect. But that's another story when we get to that. But, um, does a day go by when someone doesn't bring up Brandon Walsh to you? Um, uh, at this point in my life, yes. Yes, days go by, but weeks don't go by. Okay, okay that's, fair. that's yeah. fair enough. Now, when you landed that part, any idea the longevity and popularity the show would have? Like, here we are 25 years later and still talking about it. Yeah, no. No, I didn't. I, I had no idea. I, I mean, I, you know, you, you, you always go into a, a new show like that. And, of course, that, that was back in the day when we just shot pilots for shows. I mean, you always, shoot the, you always used to shoot the pilot for a show and hope for the best. I mean, you just, you just hope to get, you know, a pickup and, and get to make more episodes. I mean, you know, we just hoped that the show would go beyond the pilot stage, right? We had no idea that we were going to be in for a, you know, a 10-year run on a global phenomenon like that. It was, uh, 
a once in a lifetime opportunity and something that I'll, I'll always remember and something that I always feel incredibly blessed to be a part of. Well, we're proud of you because you're Canadian and we as Canadians, we all stick together. So we all, we all pull that way. And, um, you know, Michael, let's get to you. How did Offside come to fruition and why Harold? So the project started as a scripted project, actually. I uh, enlisted the support of uh, first Chuck Tatham, who's a talented Canadian writer living in L.A. And we started down this road. We brought Jason on board to direct it. And, you know, getting, getting that project done, which was a scripted version of Ballard's Life, Chuck wrote a great script. And, you know, we were, we were climbing that mountain, getting it financed, getting it financed. Couple of things happened. One of them being COVID, and we it just kind of stalled us. So in the process, though, we accumulated so much information, so much research on the life of Harold that it was very, very clear that a documentary had to be done. And when I checked, and as a producer, you know, it, when when that light bulb goes off and you realize nobody had done the documentary, it was very exciting, and we got it uh, fortunately into production right away and with the CBC and, and made a great uh, go of it. And, and now I think that this documentary is maybe our greatest selling tool to get the scripted version done. Michael, writing the script, what was the message you wanted to get across to viewers? Just, um, it, it was still consistent with the documentary that here was a guy that uh, ran unchecked. He, uh, he had a very, very valuable public uh, institution in his control called the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, you know, how he just ran amok and uh, um, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't have anybody challenging him along the way and just an incredible character that he was. So I think, you know, we did that in a documentary. We did this in the script. But it's, it's really a story about a guy. And what excited me is Harold Ballard. You know, at that time in Canada, nobody was like Harold Ballard. Nobody existed like him. He was probably the country's biggest character, let alone Toronto. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it was just, it was just right for the picking and, um, um, you know, to have so many great people join our documentary and talk, uh, about their experience with Harold and not really look to pile on what was a very public persona perception of Harold, but really tell their personal interactions and, and their own personal feelings about their time with the Leafs and, and Harold's reign, I think, uh, came through in the documentary. And, you know, Jason was, was very disarming, was great at, at getting that from everybody and uh, in all of his sit-down discussions. So, you know, it was just a great story that spanned, you know, 50 years, basically. Squid? Yeah, the, uh, I thought it was fantastic, personally. I, uh, I think it portrayed him, like, to a T, really, what he, what he was like and... Uh, uh, I had a lot of fun uh, being involved with it, uh, going down and being interviewed for it and everything. Um, but, I mean, it was so true about what Harold was at that point. And, you know, the sad part is there were 21 teams in the league back then, and there was probably only four or five in the league that were run properly. And, and yeah. the rest were probably run like the Toronto Maple Leafs with Harold Ballard. Yeah. So uh, you, you should probably find a few other owners that were – very similar to Harold. <laughs> Jason? Yeah, I think, you know, look, I mean, making the movie for me was, uh, was, was, uh, was, was a lot of fun. It was, it was a great education. Uh, you know, I knew, I knew a little bit about Ballard, but uh, through, uh, through making this movie, I got to know 
a whole lot about uh, Harold Ballard, you know, and it was, <laughs> uh, so it was, it was a great uh, uh, opportunity for me and a great uh, education for me. And I, I felt, uh, I felt incredibly, um, incredibly honored that so many, that so many great uh, uh, players and journalists and, and uh, people uh, came and, uh, you know, people like Rick came and came and spoke to me and came and spoke to me with such, uh, with such candor about their experiences with Harold, you know, it was really, uh, it was really, really, really incredible uh, experience. And I, and I just hope that, um, that, uh, that, that we, you know, you know, took care of, of, of everybody's uh, personal experiences, you know, it was because it, because it was fascinating that, that he was, you know, he was, he was hated by a lot of people, but he was beloved by some people as well. And, 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 and every, and every emotion in between there, you know, so I, so I really felt like it was it was it was it was our responsibility as filmmakers to to lay all of the evidence out uh, as we were able to gather it from all the people who knew him, um, and and just lay it out for the for the for the for the viewer and and let them sort of come to their own conclusion about Harold Ballard because he was very uh, very polarizing and very mercurial and you know he was he really did a lot of things that were very. Uh, you know, contrarian, uh, you know, like he was, he was a real, um, he was, a, he was a real, in, he was a very interesting uh, character. And I, I think that uh, I, I just, I just hope that uh, the people get that takeaway from the, from the piece. Well, the interesting thing is that because we, you know, as fans, we read what goes on in the paper, but if you don't know anybody, what's going on behind the scenes, it would be easy, as Michael said, to pile on Harold because of the well-documented tales, but, I think you would agree, Jason, that, you know, he was a complex individual, to say the least, who seemed to relish in the absurd. And the more bizarre the story surrounding him, the more he liked it. Like the story, like some of the fables, like turning the air conditioning and the water taps off for the Beatles concert. The gardens right. didn't have air conditioning, didn't have water taps, but he just right. sort of let that tale live forever. And yeah. you, know, you guys had to distinguish all that when you're talking to guys like Rick and people around the gardens. Yeah, well, it was. I, I think. I think that. I think that was that stuff was important, you know. And and I think that you know to show that to show that the sort of the paradox, you know, like he was, you know, on one hand he wanted to be known as this great promoter, and on the other hand he wanted to be known as this great businessman, you know. Like he, it's, it's almost like he didn't know which what lane he wanted to stay in, right? So he tried to fill up all the lanes, right, and be. He almost wanted to be everything to everyone all the time, you know. And and you know, it's almost like. Um, in business and in life, you can't you can't do that, right? And I and I think that maybe maybe that's the lesson uh, the, that that people should take away from this. Squid. Yeah, I think uh, well, one of the things that I recall is that whatever he needed to do to get on the front page of the sports <laughs> on a daily basis, he managed to do it. And I well to say the most absurd things to the last. Just to make sure that he got on the next yeah. cover of the sports, and and he pretty much achieved that almost on a daily basis during the season. Well, one of the old tales that has been around for years and years. I had the only remaining Stanley Cup banner from 1962. That the story making arounds for years and years was that Harold had given these to the workmen and told them to use them as paint tarps paint, and work tarps around tarps. the gardens. Yeah. Well, the workman did use them, but he had no idea they were using the banners. He just let this tale live on forever. And it wasn't until a gardens employee, the upholsterer, 
he found them and found the last one and saved it. Otherwise, they were all gone. But it's just this kind of absurdity that just Harold just loved to live in. Uh, it, you know, I, that that's interesting to me because he also did that with, you know, what I admire about America is how they preserve their history. And we, as a country, I don't think we do nearly as good a job. But, you know, you look at the gondola, for instance. That, yes. You know. Uh, that, that was just destroyed, you know, and, and that, that is living history. Uh, all the games that were called from Foster Hughes' gondola. Uh, so maybe not surprising. Uh, he just didn't have a good sense of that. Well, you know, it's funny. Brian McFarlane, who was not only banished from the Gardens, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and worked yeah. the gar- ended up working for Harold. Harold yeah. took him through the Gardens and down in the lower bowls one day and said, I want this room cleaned out. And so, you know, Brian looked around and he saw these cassettes and he went over like goes, Harold, these are all the game films from going right back to beginning of CBC, all our games. And he goes, I don't care. Get them out of here. I want this. I need this room cleared out. And he goes, well, can I have them? And he goes, get this crap out of here. How many times have to tell you, Brian, get the kids down here and clean it out. He needed it to store furniture in there. And these were all the leaf games. And Paul Pasco, who was a contributor mm-hmm. to your documentary. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. along with Brian, they saved them all and all those leaf you know, classic games, you see, they'd be all gone forever. And he didn't even care. No. Oh, my God. No, it's, ter- it's terrible. To- just the fact that oh, he owned the terrible. team. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, there was, not a, there was not a Smithsonian approach to uh, no. Harold's world. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the Beatles story is one of the best ones when he sold the two shows and the Beatles only signed up for one. And he just handed yeah. Epstein the, contract, the ticket for the, the check for 50 grand and said, there you go. So why are yeah. only playing one contract? He said, "Well, you know, you go out there and tell them they're not playing." Then, you know, here's, they took the fifty grand and went and played. That's a great picture. I have not seen that picture in all of our uh, archival. That's a good. No, one. That's a great one. I like that one. Well, yeah, that's Glenn. Glenn is the best in the business. That's who does all this for us. He's awesome. I like that one. Squid. Well, I mean, all the stories you hear, and then I was shocked when I saw the documentary and I didn't realize that Muhammad Ali when he wouldn't go to war and he couldn't fight in the U.S. but Harold had him come to Canada I mean that was Harold he, he was going to do whatever he could to make money and so he capitalized on a situation like that and that was just the way he was if, if there was an opportunity he was going to find it well, that's very true. And uh, that was the end of Con Smythe, that uh, incident with uh, Cassius Clay coming into the garden. So that's another whole project in itself. But, um, you know, Jason, you know, how did now you and Michael, Michael, to d- d- describe briefly how you guys connect. But how did you really connect on the project? And first off, Jason, why did you accept? And secondly, Michael, why pick Jason? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I accepted because, I, you know, you know, I initially, like Mike said, we got involved uh, working on the scripted project together. Um, and uh, and the scripted project was 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 a super interesting project. Uh, like he said that, you know, the writer of it, uh, Chuck Tatham, wrote a, a really, uh, really interesting uh, script that, that we were working on together. Um, and when and when Mike came up with the idea to uh, to do this documentary, um, we all wanted to work on the documentary together because we all just thought that um, mm-hmm. that that you know Ballard was such a was such an interesting character. We all wanted to to find out 
everything that we could about him because he was such a paradox, you know, and he was, he was, he was just like so many, so many things about him didn't make sense. And the, the lies that he told and the, and the, that just it, it was so fantastical that we that you know I, I really tried to get I really wanted to just as a you know as as a filmmaker and as and as 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 the filmmaker who is who's gonna make this the scripted drama version of it I really wanted to do everything I could to to get to the to get to the why of it right why did he do all these things was it just greed was he was he was he was he a pathological liar was he, was he a con man? Like, I just, I wanted to get to as many, I wanted to get as close to the answer as I could. And, and I found it incredibly difficult because everybody had, uh, everybody I could find who knew him had a different opinion, you know? Um, yep. So I, so, it, so I think, I think, uh, you know, it, it made, it made, it's going to make our jobs more difficult on the, on the scripted side of it because, because we're, I think we're going to have to lay out a few, um, a few versions of, of why he did the things that he did. Because it, it has been very hard to get to, a, to one specific answer as to why he did those things. Michael? The, just to touch on what Jason said, the, the, the scripted version, uh, it would be highly stylized. Meaning we're not just going to do a straight linear story of Harold Ballard. Uh, you can't. It wouldn't do the old guy justice. Uh, he was too much of a character. So that's what the fun part will be, um, is is tackling this, uh, you know, as a scripted project, because we'll have a lot of uh, style and, and, and a vision to it that'll be quite a bit different from a straight documentary as we did. Um, the one thing about the documentary, um, boy, we left people wanting more. And I think that's, a, you know, that's we've we've heard that. From a lot of people, we could have probably, in hindsight, done a two-parter, um, which you know um, there was more than enough material, clearly, and more than enough time to, to still do the story the way we did it, which was very pacey. Um, but we left them wanting more, and uh, we do think that you know this this scripted version will will uh, be welcomed, and we can get working on it soon. What was the first part of your question, Mike? I just why you picked Jason. Oh, sorry. There you go. I'm glad I reminded myself because I would have left that one as a big open hole. Um, <laughs> so first of all, Jason and I uh, have some common friends and we knew each other a little bit from, from just being in the business. Um, and I know he's a hockey fan and I know, um, uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, I was very impressed with his previous documentary uh, that he did on the Beer Naked Ladies um, back in uh, I think it was early 2000s. Um, and um, so this made a lot of sense. And, you know, as soon as we started getting into things, um, we all, with, with Chuck Tatham and the three of us, as much as there was a Troika and the Leafs that maybe didn't get along, we were a great Troika, uh, if I do say so. We had a lot of fun. And uh, the, the, the one thing we can all say is, you know, uh, that's all you want when everybody's when, mm -hmm. when all cylinders are firing and everybody's working well and you've got a topic everybody's quite passionate about uh you want to have some fun and i think that was a nice quote and a nugget rick gave us that you know during the 80s you just you do want to have some fun you have a job you're there to do your job yeah we also want to enjoy the, the passion of you know getting to that point in your life and so i'm at a point where you know 
I, I kind of now, I, I, I just want to do topics that I really am interested in. Um, so well, let's get back one. to now squid. Having lived through a lot of this, and Mike just touched on. I want to get both Jason and Michael's opinion in a second on this also. But is there a topic in the doc you'd like to have seen expanded on a little more? Uh, you know what? I, I'm not really sure uh, of any one individual thing. There was a lot of things I didn't know about the Silver Seven and all this kind of stuff, but. Um, I think the only thing I probably would have liked to uh, maybe go into the the financial part of it at the end of it and everything, uh, just how everything ended up. And I, I know they kind of talk about, uh, what's her name, Yolanda getting $5 million and two gold tickets and the kids got nothing and everything went to charity. But I would have liked to have known where that money went exactly. Mm hmm. Michael, what about you and Jason? Now, both you guys, uh, Mike, you go first. Like what topic right off the top of your head would you like to have seen maybe expand a little more? Um, yeah, good question. Um, I mean, we had to we had to make tight links in the chain all along. So that you could argue we, I want to do more of every little link in that chain. Yeah, of course. But I, I, um, I thought actually going into this that we we were spending too much time on the how harold got the team so the the boardroom machinations and and the, the you know the, the boardroom battles that were happening and yep. um i i love history so just you know th those years where they were winning the cups um i probably wished we had to spend a little more time on that in the 60s um because that was just it would highlight just you know more about how Harold became how Harold was, uh, and he was a he was PT Barnum, right? He was a showman, and, and you know he had his hands on everything back in the '60s that you know outside of hockey. And the challenge for for Jason and our team was the coverage and and people to talk about that era because there's not many people left, right? So you know. Um, so that's probably for me, the one area that I, I'm just super interested in. And you talk earlier about that, 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 uh, Shavalo fight. I, I got to know George Shavalo 10, 15 years ago. Cause I wanted to do a project with him and, uh, he had a documentary done about him by a director and a friend of mine, uh, called the last round. And it was really about that fight in 1966 and how everything propelled Ali to come to Canada. The story is fantastic. And that for Ballard to get his hands on that fight and say, I don't give a shit. I was, I can say shit. I don't yes, give a shit about what anybody's thinking. I can say shit. Cause Rick said it about nine times in our documentary. Um, <laughs> so, um, which is good. I'm glad you did by the way. Um, but Ballard said, I don't give a shit about the politics of this fight. I don't give it. I don't you know, care that Ali doesn't want to go to Vietnam. I care about the fact that now this is one of the biggest news stories in the world. And he brought that fight to Toronto when every other American city and the mayor in every city was standing up saying, if you're thinking of coming to Los Angeles, forget it. We're not going to have the fight here. Um, and then, of course, it was it was one of the events of the century. People don't know it, but, you know, that it was in Maple Leaf Gardens. It was one of the sporting events of the century, that fight. 
It was yeah. the first fight Ali did uh, when he was blacklisted. So I, I think that era, that time in Toronto yep. was fantastic. So, Jason, what about you? I I wanted to, uh, I, I, I kind of wish that we, uh, and, and this was only after a few viewings of the film. Yep. I wish that we had tracked a little more the like the value of the team and the, like the share price of the team because the team was always publicly traded. I wish that we had spent a little more time tracking the share price of the team while the performance of the team was declining through the 80s. I wish we would have spent a little more time tracking the share price of the team so we really could have illustrated yep. for everybody, you know, how it, how you know how how like how in, in no no other city in the world would it work this way only in toronto and only in canada where everybody loves hockey so much can it can the team's performance be going down and down and down every year but the share price on the tsx just continue to go up and up and up and up and up you know like i think i think we should have spent a little more time uh, or spend some time um illustrating that so that we could have illustrated a little more how how you know Ballard, through all of his cheapness and his bad decisions, was also stuffing his pockets full of money uh, at the same time. Well, it's funny you mention that, Jason, because Jimmy Devolano, who was GM of the Detroit Red Wings, and he became one of the single individual largest shareholders of Maple Leaf Gardens outside of corporations, and Harry Ornest and a few others, he bought the stock for that exact reason you're targeting. He knew you wouldn't spend money on the team, but right. he would fill the rank fill the rink with uh you know events and the money would flow to the bottom line so i was on bay street for 40 years so one of the old uh, adages on bay street is you go if you're gonna deal in thug world go the same way they do so if they're buyers so are you and harold was a buyer of stock so so is jimmy yeah and you can see the way the stock and he actually helped price the stock at the end when he got 49 and a half bucks for it so to your point that that's a very good observation yeah that would have yeah. been fun to do for sure yeah. that up, Jason, because it reminded me of when I was doing my contract after the 350 goal seasons, when he said I wasn't going to get another goddamn dime from him. Right. And so we couldn't come to terms. They offered <laughs> me 5,000 shares of Maple Leaf Gardens. And I'm thinking, oh, what, what do I want that for? I want the money. I want what, right? I mean, you know, that's all I wanted was my contract and the money. Well, little did I know that that 5,000 shares was going to go to $250 at one time. So I guess I was just one. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> wow. Now, Michael, what did you think the biggest challenge would be to have the finished product meet your expectations? Um, you know, in the pro to, to meet my expectations and Jason's, you know, being the director, I mean, I think we just wanted to be uh, true and not take any creative license, first of all. I mean, which I think we accomplished. Um, the challenge was in 90 minutes, trying to have a take on Harold Ballard's life. And, you know, we started in 1903 in this documentary when he was born. Um, but not getting too confused and get, you know, I, I think I, we were happy with this and meeting the expectations when I saw that we were able to uh, fill in a lot of blanks about a guy who was an extremely public figure. That did it for me. I, I felt really good because um, it would have been cheap to just repackage and tell the, tell all the tales about why people disliked Harold. 
uh, I think we, we enlightened a lot of people that might have even been hardcore, uh, you know, people to the story that knew the story intimately. I think we, we're, we can be quite proud that we, we brought some new stuff to the table and some great old footage along with it. So what turned out to be the biggest challenge then? Uh, our archival was very challenging. Yeah. Um, for a guy who was as public as Harold, he did, uh, and we've talked about this, some very, he did very few one-on-one -on -one interviews. He did, you know, the one that, thank God, it was there and we could access it, the, the, the famous interview on the Fifth Estate with Barbara Frum. Yeah. I mean, that one gave us gold um, for sure. Because basically, Harold said in that interview, as you've seen the documentary, that he kind of, you know, he was a, a he was a con man, you know, um, and you know, said he didn't care what people thought, and said some great things that backed up our narrative and the thread that we were putting through this documentary. So, Jason, Jason yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I feel like my, you know, that we, um, that we were, you know, hopefully we were just able to, you know you know, fill in some of the gaps and, and, mm -hmm. and ho hopefully explain some of the reasons why Harold was the way that he was and did some of the things that he did and made some of the bad decisions that he did. Um, I, I think, and I, I, I think, I think Michael might've misspoke. It was actually the, the, the fifth estate people with Adrian Clarkson. Um, she, was the, she was the, but you said Barbara from, but, it, oh, but it, that was, no, that's all right. Um, uh, it was that was another very enlightening piece that I'd actually yeah, yeah, never yeah. heard before. Um, but uh, I, I, lo I love that interview. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just glad that, um, but uh, you know, but so many of the things came out of uh, came out of the interviews that we talked to, that we talked to people too, you know, like, you know, like, like that, like that, that, that interview with Barbara Froome came from one of the came from one of the uh, journalists that we were talking to. Like, she, she started talking about this you know, this legendary interview with Barbara Froome. And I, of course, was like writing notes or like someone's got to get that interview with Barbara Froome. So we sent our archives to go find it. And, you know, and they, you know, dug it out of somewhere in the, you know, in the basement of the CBC, they found that that interview. And, and so we were able to access it, you know, which was fantastic because I think it was very telling of, of, of who that man really was. You know, yeah. you can't, you know, you can't, uh, you can't, you can't, you, you know, someone just said, well, you know, you said a lot of sexist things. That's one thing, but when you actually hear him doing it and saying it live on the radio, it's you know it becomes an entirely different thing. Now, Squid, as a player, you you guys are in the dressing room and this stuff is all going on. What were the players talking about when they would hear some of Harold's comments? Uh, what, what are you going to say? <laughs> you know, we would, uh, I mean, it, Michael brought it up earlier. Like basically every day it was like okay what's going to happen at parliament bailey's today <laughs> right. that's kind of how we looked at it because i mean the guy was outrageous he said outrageous things and uh, i mean you know i mean <laughs> yeah there's cc puck <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i've got all my leaf uh, pictures and not one of them doesn't have a dog in it so um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's just the way Harold he does what he did whatever the hell he felt like doing and he didn't care what people thought and so like I said we would just be in the room and we'd say okay what's going to happen today at Barnum and Bailey <laughs> I mean you know that's that's what we called it well that's it was it, it was it, it was, it was 
it, it was also crazy, wasn't it, Rick? In, in the fact that, like, he would come down and, like, he would shower with you guys and stuff <laughs> after practice, right? Because he lived in the building, right? He thought he was part of the team, basically, right? Well, our trainer had to rub his legs before practice every day because he had <laughs> diabetes and he had circulation problems. So if you wanted to get your wrist taped or something, like, good luck before practice because Harold was getting his legs on. Now, this one time, which was a real funny thing that happened, uh, he came down later during practice, and we were coming in off the ice, and he was coming out of the shower. Well, one of the guys had filled one of the hair dryers with uh, baby powder. <laughs> and he's walking out of the shower, and we're going, oh, boy, I hope he doesn't grab the one with the baby powder. Sure enough, <laughs> he did. He was covered with baby powder. He walked out with a towel around him. He said, wow. And then, who, put, who did that? He said, that was unbelievable. He, he thought it was funny as hell. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh my god and we, well, we had Gordon Salming on oh sorry go ahead Jason no no Rick hold on I heard I heard one other thing too maybe you can verify this so Guy Kinnear his boat mechanic who was one of your trainers <laughs> right I heard yes. I heard that Guy Kinnear hated the sight of blood so like if, if one of you guys actually got hurt Guy Kinnear couldn't help you because he'd be he'd be like over in the corner going huh, 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 right is that true well the, the big one I remember was when Boria had his face yeah. stepped on in Detroit. Right. So Guy Kinnear, the mechanic, ran down to the door, <laughs> opened the door. He was waiting for Boria to get to the bench. He got there. There was so much blood. He just went down in a heap. He, 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 <laughs> and he's laying there. So someone had to grab his arms and pull him back from the door so people could get in and out. And I remember Phil Lego was at the end of the bench right beside me and he pulled out one of his smelling salts and he cracked it and he goes come on gunner wake up wake up we might need you we might i'm not sure but we might <laughs> why well, you know full disclosure here jason like you and i are kind of acting buddies now i know another part i was going to get to is the boy's solving story you play jerry yeah. mcnamara yeah. we'll get to that in a few minutes but I, I, my wife and I were consultants at the beginning of that, had setting them up with a lot of players and contacts and stuff like that a couple yep, of years fantastic. ago. Fantastic. So Great. they gave me a walk on part. So I was a referee. So one of the games I refereed was the Salming injury. And part oh, yeah. one of the parts in that is when I'm walking on the ice with Guy Kinnear and he takes, they take a look at, boy, he passes out on the ice. <laughs> I have to pick him up. So he faints on me. I, I got to pick him up. Oh my god! Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. Here's, so that's, here's, that's, here's, here's my big question. So after he collapsed on the ice, he probably hit his head or something. Did he give himself a Neo Citron that night to make himself better? <laughs> I, I remember one time going in. My I, I, I did something to my shoulder the night before. I walk in, I said, Harold, I mean, Guy, I said, well, we call him Gunner. And I said, Gunner, right. I said, my shoulder aches. I, I don't know what I, I So he goes in his bag. He hands me two packages of Neo <laughs> I go, well, what the hell is this? He goes, well, you must be getting the flu. He said, your shoulder's aching. I said, crazy. My shoulder hurts. He said, well, that'll work. <laughs> That really is pretty funny. It's now, the best. That is, that's, that's Harold. It just makes it all the better. Yeah. That's Harold. 
And then we then we ended up getting a masseuse, a Russian guy. Our, right. our, our Katie Kevlin was his name. And then he took over doing Harold's legs. So guy was able to tape our wrists or anything we needed before practice. <laughs> Well, it's He's great. It's great. Here's the other story. <laughs> hey, it's great. Here's the other story you can tell the boys too. Maybe you guys don't know this one, but Harold, one of the like, we'll get into the business side in a couple seconds. But one of the things he did, he used to have tickets and scalp them, and he had his illegitimate son apparently scalping the tickets for him, and Harold's pocketing the cash. But right. that scalper, well, it's great. You tell the story about training camp. I'm not really sure whether he is his illegitimate son or not, but that, that was a story. So we start training camp, and there's four teams, uh, and you play, you scrimmage in the morning, then you skate in the afternoon. Well, here's this guy who was scalping the tickets. He's on the ice. He gave him a tryout. <laughs> and, and what? Oh, you got to be kidding me. Like, like really? Like this is this is ridiculous. I mean, the guy could not keep up at all, and I think he was gone after a day and a half. Though I think they said, "Okay, you're out of here." But they're giving this guy a, a trial. <laughs> Only in Toronto. Only in Toronto. Well, anyway, now Michael, the CBC's yep. involvement did they give you complete creative control? And was there any subject they asked you to tone down or eliminate? uh apps well as far as complete control no i mean there's there's they approve they approve the cuts okay um that's just you know the way it works you you provide a cut and they give notes and you go to work on those notes and some notes you fix some you can't okay and uh it's it's just what it is. It's a process back and forth, and they uh, they gave some good notes, and we responded, and some notes we fought for uh, when we really thought no, we we don't agree, um, we're not going to do that, and that just comes with uh, how much you care about whether you get your next one with them. So, you know, there's also the politics of it. So it's it's just a process, and it's never never fun for either party probably, but. Well, the reason I was going with that was because there was the one contentious issue with, uh, you, you know, with the women going in a locker room and Harold's yep. famous comment. And that one, we, Squid and I had that sent to us about a year ago by somebody. Yeah. I think Steve Thomas sent it to us and he found it. And yeah. we listened to that. That would be one that would be, that was a, that's an eye opener for anybody watching and not knowing that story. Oh yeah. I would have, no. I would have, uh, laid across a train track if they, you know, I wanted that in. That That's so spoke so many things that we were talking about in the documentary. I actually played golf with Steve Thomas this summer um, when we talked about that, when I, when he found out I was doing the documentary, the, um, um, but yeah, I mean, th there were things that, uh, you know, we had to get, we had to take out that were quite funny. We'd take them out. I mean, you just have to find a balance and uh, it's, it's just what it is. So everybody's maybe a little unhappy at the end. That means it's a, a good negotiations just occurred, you know? So well, let me go to Jason on this one. then. so it's just right along those lines. How difficult was it to keep the narrative and perspective regarding the time period versus comparatives today or some eccentric owner or even a political incorrect figure like Donald Trump? I mean, Ballard could compare to all these guys. No, yeah. hundred percent. Well, I think, you know, I think that, 
uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's yeah, even, even uh, you know, looking at him through a 2023 lens, you know, so many things he did were, were way uh, offside. But, you know, even looking at him through, a, through an 80s lens or a 70s lens, he was out of bounds even back then, you know, which is, which is, which is saying something because you could get away with a lot back then. Yeah. Um, but he was, you know, he was even crossing the line <laughs> back then. I mean, he was, um, he really, I, I think, I, I think, I think Rick, uh, I think Rick said it uh, best in the movie that Harold really didn't give a shit. Yep. <laughs> well, just along those lines for both, all three of you guys can answer it. Any subject you felt uncomfortable talking about or just didn't want to squid. Let's go to you. No, not really. I, I would have said whatever the heck I wanted to, because First of all, he's not around anymore. So <laughs> he can't fire you. You know what? I didn't really care. I, I, uh, I, I just wanted to be honest about my uh, time there and my dealings with Harold and, and that sort of thing. I, you know, I didn't want anybody to think that I was worried about saying anything bad about Harold Ballard because I wasn't going, going to say a whole lot of nice things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Michael? My, my, my thing was I, uh, I didn't want to pile on. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to be as balanced as the subject would allow us to be. So, I mean, you know, one side of the scale, there's a 600-pound elephant sitting on it. So how do you balance that? But we, I think we did. And that's where some things came out. Like people didn't know he was philanthropic and he, he had a sense of charity. But, you know, uh, as I said earlier, some stories and anecdotes have come our way. You know, we found out, uh, Jason knows this story at Whistler. We did, uh, we, we did the world premiere at the Whistler Film Festival. We had a Q&A after, and a man stood up in the audience and said, I love the film. And we were like, great. And he says, I, I knew Harold. I was good friends with his son, Billy. And I'm glad you showed a bit of a softer side to him. Because this was a man, my family couldn't put me through university and Harold Ballard stepped up and put this guy through university with not wanting anything back just because he saw that the kid was going to do well in university as a, as a young man. And, and he, of course, he's forever grateful. He's a lawyer now, actually. And this, this guy was in his 70s. So that was a huge moment. I'm like, wow, I wish you know we could have known that before the documentary. Because So I, I'm just... I'm, you know, the balance that was important, right? Jason. Uh, yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with, uh, with what Mike said, you know, it, it, it was important for us to show, to, to, to show all facets of him, you know, because he was, he was a complicated, um, individual like we all are. Right. And, and there, and there were yeah. many sides to him. Um, and I, and it, you know, does it, you know, it, is, you know, it, 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 were, were the good thing did, did the good things that, that he did, balance out the you know the more questionable things that he did like is is his ledger going to be even you know yeah. at the end of the day i you know I, I i that has yet to be seen um but but you know uh, but i uh, but he was you know he was complicated like like everybody right he wasn't you know no, nothing in this world is black and white um and neither was harold ballard the, the, the one thing uh quickly that again getting yeah. back to some things we didn't know 
I think one of his, you know, we're, Jason was always trying to find out motivations throughout this documentary, and, and we brought some to the surface. And one was he was in debt. Like yep. you assume, oh, you're the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs. You're sitting on a, a pile of gold, and you are. But he, the banks own the team. He owed a lot of money, and we got into that in the documentary. And, you know, that, that could change a man, even though, you know, maybe you didn't want everybody to know about it. But, you know, his, his DNA was changed when he took on $14 million of debt back in 1970, 71. Like, that was a lot of money back then. So uh, if that, that made him maybe the way he is, then there's, there's one thing I didn't know, you know. Well, one of the side businesses, the the Davis Printing and a couple of other businesses went under. The tie cats were bleeding them dry. It was like four yeah. million dollars going out, five million coming in the front door, and four million going out the back door to support that. Yeah, uh, you know all the machines and the the gardens was antiquated. It hadn't been updated since 1931. What people don't realize, and you guys do, but um, the, the the concession stands. They weren't even updated with modern cash registers to control the sales. So he was probably getting robbed blind and yeah. he wouldn't sell beer till after he died. Like Bob Stelic spent years trying to talk him into selling beer, which was a cash cow. And yeah. there he is with a beer in his hand. But, <laughs> you know, he wouldn't do it. And, oh, you know, wow. so you're right to that point that people don't realize he wasn't really on top of things as everybody gives him credit for. Well, you know, even even going back to the the first the first time I was in Maple Leaf Gardens as a teenager, you know, having Mike, you started to say something? Well, you're just talking about how kind of antiquated, you know, the building yeah. was. Maple Leaf Gardens, he, he didn't spend anything on the building. And, you know, all you had to do was go in the men's washroom and as yeah. a teenager. And then it was, uh, it was the old trough method. And uh, that, that, was, that was an awakening. I'm, I'm, I haven't recovered since. But, you know, those, those old troughs were there forever. Yeah. And, uh, Good thing they didn't sell beer in the gardens back then because you know it would have been a problem they didn't have enough washrooms and they were they were troughs were well here's something for the listeners just maybe to give them a little bit of an idea i mean a juicy character like ballard is a walking talking soundbite machine if you if you will but you guys just to let the listeners know must have poured through hundreds of hours of interviews to capture the essence of ballard how taxing was that process just to give us an idea and how do you and again, identifying the right pieces to use. I mean, that that is a labor of love. It was, uh, it it was, it was challenging, and it was. I mean, it was more. It was more challenging for our editor, uh, Ken Yan, who was an incredibly uh, patient, incredibly talented uh, man who did he did the lion's share of of that kind of work for us, um, thankfully. Um, but it was, you know, that I mean, that kind of work is uh, is is laborious to say the least. Yep. Michael? Yeah, I mean, it all. an editor is a special breed for sure. 
Um, talk about taking notes earlier, you know, an editor delivers something that they're very proud of as a rough cut. And, and the only thing you hear are notes. There's Joyce. Um, and um, yeah, I have all the respect in the world for Ken, our editor, and then our archive producer who has to go looking and has to go find, you know, if we get that great, that great nugget, as we call in the business from somebody like Rick in his interview, okay, can we cover it? Can we find something yep. that covers it? And sometimes you could, sometimes you, you couldn't. And that would inform the choices of what made it into the documentary as well. And uh, there was a lot of great stuff that we couldn't cover. Either great footage with nobody to speak to it or great speaking points that we didn't have coverage for. And that's the editor's job. And it kind of all has to come together in, at the same time. And that is the challenge. Um, well, just on that note, Mike, how did you guys choose the characters to relay their views on Harold, either working for him or playing with him? I mean, he made a lot of enemies along the way. Yeah. And a lot of players were pissed off leaving Toronto. And yeah. I know even during Daryl Sittler's interview, he looked a little bit like he was biting his tongue a lot. And even Rick, shit, you look like you were a little bit guarded at times as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it was very important for us to get to obviously the go ahead, Rick. I don't want to sound like an idiot, but uh, so you got to be a little bit careful what you say, obviously. Mike? Um, you know, we obviously we wanted to talk to as many of the players in that era for sure and getting getting all the captains. It was very important for us. Bob uh, Gordy Stellick was, you know, a great. He was on our team. He was an associate producer. Uh, was our secret weapon. Gordy's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. So um, he was instrumental, without a doubt, getting everybody on board. Back to a guy like Eagleson, uh, right up to Wendell, who played in the last, you know, five six years of Harold's life. Um, but you know, the other side of it was, yeah, there were a lot of enemies, as you said. But we really wanted to talk to the print and sports media in town uh, who were around during Harold's reign. That was very important. And of course, you know, I, 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 one person I wish we had have talked to was um, Michael Cole, the big concert promoter. We tried to, we just yep. couldn't, couldn't get him on board, who was partnered with Bill Ballard to really talk about, you know, the shows in the, in the gardens and that whole side of MLG, uh, you know, we couldn't get a hold of Michael, but I mean, that was the only game in town. I think Bob Stellick said, um, and, and uh, Jim McKenney said it best, you know, Harold's Harold, I think the quote was, he didn't take any Dale Carnegie courses. He said, it's my building. I'm the only game in town. If you don't like it, F <laughs> off. I mean, that was a great, that was a great nugget in the show. And uh, uh, by the way, we fought to keep that in. Um, well, that's know, what he told Billy Joel. Remember when Billy Joel yeah. during his warmup? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, Jason, you were talking to the players. So you're watching your body language. Did you sense when you were going to a place they didn't want to go to at times through some of these talks? I, uh, I not really. I, I I found most of the guys to be really yep happy, really open and and happy to talk about it. Um, because they were, they, you know, they were, they were, they were talking about their own experiences, right? They were, they were merely, uh, you know, they, they weren't, uh, you know, not, nothing they were saying was, was opinion, right? Yep. They, were, they were just talking about their own experiences. And I think that that, that that made it, uh, that that made it very freeing for them. I think, 
I, 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 I think you're right. I think that Daryl, um, Daryl, you know, like to, uh, like to choose his words, um, a little bit, you know, he didn't, he didn't want to say anything too, uh, too offensive to anybody, but, uh, but you could tell that he, you know, he's still, uh, still, you know, get, gets a little emotional about the way he got, he was, he felt he was treated yep. in Toronto through, through that whole, um, situation, you know, with Lanny and then, you know, you know, take pulling the C off his Jersey. Like he still, he still gets emotional, um, when talking about that, uh, you know, that was a very difficult time for him. Um, well, well Jason, is, just along that remarkable line. all these years later, right? Hey, Jason. So along that line, who is the most, and, and the Stelics don't count because those two are walking encyclopedias when it comes to the gardens, who is the most engaging interview and squid doesn't count either. Cause he's on the show. Who is the most engaging? Wow. Uh, uh, who is the most engaging? Well, the one you got, wow. the, okay, what was the most alarming or the best story you got from somebody? That it that stunned you. Like you just kind of laughed. You said that, that I can't believe that really happened. Oh, man. <laughs> Boy, that's, a, that's good. Um. Oh, wow. I'm going to ask you other two too. So, Squid, you got to tell me the best story you heard too. Oh man, that that's uh, that's tough. That's tough. The um, what? Well, well, let, let me let me, let me read off you. Gavin Kirk told us, and we had him on the show. Here's here's a good yeah. here's a Ballard story for you. Okay, this Gavin, one you guys maybe don't know. So he's playing okay. for the Marlies, and he's going to the Maple Leafs for a tryout. So. They're trying to sign him and they can't agree. They are often about half of what he thought he could get. He's speaking to his dad and another agent and he thinks he'd go somewhere else because he's basically a free agent. So anyway, after one practice through camp, he comes off the ice and trainers say, go up and see Mr. Baller right away. So he goes to take his skates off and they said, no, 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 go. Your he goes with my skates. So he thought they were pranking him, but the look of fear in their faces, he knew they weren't. So he walks across the tile floor up the escalator into Ballard's office. Ballard makes him wait because just because he was Ballard. He then brings him into the office 45 minutes later, beats on him to try and sign a contract when he knows there's no way that Kirk's going to sign, throws him out. Kirk comes down the escalator and at the bottom, there's just close at the bottom of the escalator in a heap. And the trainer's standing beside him and the trainer says, I've been told to read this to you. You're no longer a member of the Maple Leaf organization. Could you please dress and exit the building? He had to dress and change in the lobby and leave the rink. Oh, man. <laughs> so, Jason, how about that? Now that you've heard that, anything along those lines come your way from play? Nope. Nope. Nothing like that. That's crazy. I used That's to really play pickup good. hockey with Gavin Kirk at Moss Park Arena for about 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, um so the one story I was told, and Rick would probably know this, before you guys would leave the tarmac, you know, for an away game at the <laughs> airport, oh, Ballard would uh, piss on the front wheel of the plane. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we wanted to put that in the documentary, but of course we didn't have any footage to uh, substantiate it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Lehman tell you that story? Yeah. 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 So Squid, that, that, what's the most funny story you you picked up? That, or the most interesting fact about Harold that you didn't know besides the financials out of that doc, out of the documentary? Uh, not 
not a whole lot. I mean, I knew most of it. I mean, I didn't know about the early days, like I said, with the Silver 7 and all that. But as far as everything else, I pretty much knew all the stuff that went on back then, at least during the 80s anyway. Uh, and I had to go through that um, with Daryl there too. And that, that was very, very difficult because, you know, with Punch put him through the ringer by trading all his buddies. And of course, I get traded for one of them. And uh, so, you know, I kind of felt that for him that I was one of the guys who got traded for one of his buddies. But at the same time, you got a job to do and, and you got to go out on the ice and do your job. And, uh, but I, I saw it weighing on, on Daryl very, very heavily. And that wasn't fun to see. Well, Squid, let me ask you this. After enduring all these frustrating years, the Riddle Kill You players took from the fans and from the media at times. Is this documentary a sense of redemption for you as a player? And what I mean by that is, like any successful or unsuccessful business, it starts at the top. And in this case, with Ballard at the controls, you guys never had a chance to win. And one could argue you guys performed extremely well under the circumstances. Or, or what you want to call it. The one thing that kind of drives me crazy is, is all the time I always hear in, in anything that I see or watch or anything that the Maple Leafs in the 80s was the worst decade of Maple Leaf hockey. And I'm thinking, well, hold on. I was there for seven years. We went to the playoffs four times, went to the second round twice. They haven't won a round since 2004. So was that the worst decade? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you've got a true. point. It's true. Michael, after accumulating all that you know now about the Leafs in that period in Ballard, what's your biggest takeaway personally? Um, yeah, we got asked this question earlier, and I I think it's uh, it, it's a sad story, you know? Yeah. And I think, uh, Man, I know how I would have been if I was lucky enough to own the the Maple Leafs. I would have, uh, I would have put a big uh, push to be to win and and to make it a, a great legacy for myself. I mean, uh, I think any sports owner nowadays certainly, most certainly operates that way. So th that was my takeaway. I, I was kind of sad. Uh, yeah. For how maybe he he he, he blew it, but that you know, it's, as Jason said earlier, he's. He was so damn complex. Nobody knows why he used the team almost as a way to punish people sometimes too. Um, that's, you know, nobody will ever figure that one out. So well, but I, yeah, where I was going with that is I was kind of yeah. looking, I know we kind of touched on it earlier. It's just that now that you've got the feedback from people who have seen the documentary oh, and the media yeah. and so on, and now yeah. you've had a chance to sit back and reflect after being so wrapped up in it. Sure. That's where I was going with. And Jason, you, anything different, appeal to you or st stick with you now that you've gone through all of that? Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just as confused by Harold Ballard um, <laughs> now than I was when I started, right? Like it's, he's a, he's an enigma wrapped in, uh, wrapped in pancetta. You know, he's, 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 he was a fascinating, confusing vexing character that I, I i don't know if we'll ever really get to the bottom of why he why he did the things that he did he's um he's a he's a he's a very a very com very very complex man who made it made a lot of very complex decisions squid what about you very 
you know, just hearing the things that he said, like when I saw that video of the interview in, outside the dressing room of the appendices, I, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember that interview, but like, I never saw it on TV or anything, but I'm thinking to myself, like, how the hell do you go out and say something like that when you're the owner of an NHL team? That, that blew me away. Like, it was kind of like, wow. Like, <laughs> I guess when you got money and you own an NHL team or an NFL team, back then you could say whatever you want, I guess. Yeah. But you can see the look on his face. He did it on purpose because he'll say, Harold, we can't use that. And he goes, well, why not? It's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, it, yeah. you know, now, guys, was there anybody Now, the Ballard family didn't want to partake, partake in the documentary? Anybody else refused you? They didn't want to go on camera? And has the Ballard family reached out since the documentary has come out and said anything to you? Uh, you know, we had, I had some long discussions with the Ballard family on, on going into this documentary. We wanted there's Mary Elizabeth, uh, has some lovely conversations with her. Uh, just couldn't get her to the finish line. She'd rather, she just respectfully declined, I guess is the best way to put it. Okay. And um, I've since heard, though, through a common friend that uh, Bill, uh, Harold Ballard Jr., uh, who you see in this picture, of course, Bill has passed, unfortunately, but Harold Jr. saw the documentary and liked it a lot. And of course, it would have been nice to have them involved because, you know, somebody to represent the family and yeah, see a different side of, of dad, you know, as opposed to being Harold. So, that you know, um, but so the family haven't heard from them, though, other than that. OK, because I guess, Michael, the big thing is, yeah, would, would they have uh, found any difference in yeah. you know, what he was like at home or anything? Or would he have been any different at home than he yeah. was? You know, in the documentary, like we don't even know that. But well, that right. nice to yeah. Know. yeah, it would have been nice, and and that's why we didn't go into the family dynamic too too much because they weren't there in the documentary. You know, it would have been a very one dimensional take on things and only hearsay and what the media may or may not have reported back then. But uh, you know, he was, you know, clear he he was devastated on the death of his wife. I mean. That's clear. Oh yeah. And we built on that, and maybe he was a changed man for sure, uh, following that. So, um, you know, that happened way back in '69. So, well, one of the things I found fascinating was the fact that when I when I watched it, and you had those two young journalists come on and address Ballard as he was in today's society, and being canceled and awoke and all this kind of stuff. I mean, their parents weren't even born when Ballard was around. But here are these kids. But what I found fascinating was for people from my generation, I can look and I, my first response was, well, Ballard was Ballard. He would acted the same, he would have probably acted the same way unless somebody was getting into his wallet, like with a sponsor leaving or something, he would have done the same thing. But it left it intriguing for the viewer to imagine what would he have been like today versus back in the eighties or when he was around. So I thought that was a good twist to put into the documentary to get us thinking like that, to keep it going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Ballard uh, obviously couldn't exist today. I mean, uh, starting <laughs> with the league and their constitutions for the, yes. you know, we, case in point in the NBA with Jerry Sterling, said all the things that Ballard yeah. said out loud back then. So uh, and that was only, you know, maybe five years ago that Donald Sterling got removed. 
back then I don't think you could remove an owner um, like you could today. So that's, you, I think for somebody who's, uh, you know, a millennial and in their twenties watching this, they, they don't have a lot to complain about when they, they see the Leafs the way it's run today, because back then they can, they probably can't believe how it was run back then. So I think that that was exciting for me to show then versus now. Um, and that's how we kind of ended the documentary. Uh, and the big thing that runs through this documentary is for me, maybe I could have answered that question better by saying, you know what, now there's tons of hope, but there was a time back then when there wasn't a lot of hope uh, as a fan and there was a lot of apathy, but now there's a lot of hope uh, because it's being run very, very well from the top down and that, that bet you make when you buy a ticket, um, you know, the ownership wants to win and nobody really, and I think Rick said in the documentary, like Harold probably didn't care if he won, you know? And when you buy that ticket, you, you boy, I think that's one thing you're paying for is, is hope and, and a team that you think is trying to win. And I'm not talking about the performance on the ice. I'm talking about the, the owner. Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, there's something funny. I told the boys off the air, <laughs> only in Toronto, I went to my skate this morning and I walk in the room and the guys are going, they always ask me all the Leafs stuff. So who are the Leafs going to trade for? Because Seattle made a trade yesterday and got a big defenseman. He goes, why? What's Dubas doing? He's falling. So he said, only in this goddamn city, the team is third overall in the National Hockey League and the fans are still complaining. He said, Matt, now just go back to the era with the ownership you used to have. We wouldn't pay for a player like Wayne Gretzky. When Gretzky went to come here two or three times. Yeah. So to your point, Michael, we got it pretty good today as Leaf fans. We should just sort of embrace what we have and just hope absolutely. for the best. Absolutely. I now, have, I have, can, could I ask one question of Rick before? Absolutely. I so one thing I always thought about in this documentary, and we didn't get to it because, you know, it just didn't fit find its way in. But do you think Harold wanted to be one of the guys, one of the players, like be the – like as as – bad as he was as an owner did you think he like because he went on the road a lot didn't he more than any other owner would have with the team no he he was with us on the road all the time him, well, from kim and king clancy until king passed away and king used to keep him kind of in check but he was always with us and yeah i, I don't know whether he kind of wanted to be friends with us or, or not I, I really don't know i mean like, you know, I think Jason said it best was he was so complex. And but he, he was around the players all the time. So I I always wondered if, if that myself, like did he really want to kind of be friends with the players or not? And to this day I guess I'll never know, but um he yeah. was around a lot. He was yeah. in the room a lot. He <laughs> you know, he was there after practice coming out of the shower and those types of things so he was always down there and maybe it's because he didn't have anything else to do i don't know sure. you know his good friend king was gone yeah. his wife had been gone for quite some time and maybe that was the only way that you know he could get some a little bit of peace was to come down and hang out with the guys maybe i don't know yeah well you know i can tell you we've had I don't know how many Maple Leafs on our podcast over the years and um, not a player ever knocks him. And even like a Wendell Clark, the guys will all say, look, he treated me well. He treated my parents well, you know, stuff like <coughs> Russ Courtnell and uh, Wendell Clark and their rookies and they were young. 
he they didn't have credit cards or bank machine cards or any of that stuff. So Gord Stellick would be given a few hundred extra dollars by Ballard to look after him because they know they'd run out of money being two kids. And he would just pass them off money all the time. And the, But the players would say almost to a, to a man, he treated us fine, didn't pay us well, and we knew he was never going to spend the money. So we, we knew we really weren't going to win. But they liked yeah. him. Would that be fair, Squid? Chartered when other teams weren't chartering. We stayed in the best hotels. Well, when I say chartering, except that one year where he canceled it halfway through the year. But, um, but no, I mean he treated us fine. I, it just he wouldn't pay us what players on other teams were making that played the same or had the same numbers as us. And that was the only problem in Toronto back then. It, it wasn't that he mistreated the players. It was just that. He wouldn't pay them what they should have made. Sure. So now, Michael and Jason, thank you so much for taking so much time with us. It was just a few more minutes here. But um, now with the interest in this and the well-received uh, as this documentary has been, what's next in line? Is there maybe a uh, an extension of this, a movie or something I'm hearing? Yeah, a four-by-one parter scripted, as we said earlier, is the main priority. <laughs> Uh, the documentary, though, is getting pushed out internationally. It's in the States, uh, running on some different video-on-demand platforms, and um, it's going to be going uh, overseas now that we've uh, kind of got it launched here and then in the States. So that'll take on its own life, and, and it'll, help, it'll help get this project made as a scripted four-by-one-hour. Um, so, yeah. Great. And then... You know, Jason and I are working on some other things, but unrelated. And uh, yeah. Jason, what about you? We got the salming coming up. Yeah, well, that, uh, the, the salming project probably won't be done for close to a year. It's a, it's a six-hour miniseries. Um, and I, I know that uh, Amir, the director, is deep into the post-production process on that um, back in Europe. So that's, that's still a ways off. And what else have you, what do you got on the go coming up? Uh, I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm in the middle of shooting something for Netflix right now. And I'm on my way back to Vancouver. And, um, so I'm, I'm like in the middle of a bunch of crap right now that would bore you to tears if I told you about it. <laughs> well, I got an idea for you. I got an idea for you two guys. Why doesn't somebody want to do this? How about a documentary? One I'd like to see on Con Smythe. Now, if you channel his career, he was way ahead of his time with recruiting players, setting up farm systems, building the gardens during the Depression, the Clancy trade during the Depression, gambling, the crown jewel story to buy the Maple Leafs, uh, the way he traded players, his bigotry, the way he was, the way he sold the guy. Like his story is just a fascinating story that I think should be told at some point and uh, let the generation of people now know all about this. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that'd be a hill to climb. It's a good idea. Cause I'm, I'm personally interested in it. It's just, yeah. uh, you know, getting, uh, getting uh, television land interested in a story like that about uh, <laughs> an even older white guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Jay. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, uh, yeah, that, that'd be a great, that would be a fantastic Canadian story and we'd have to do more Canadian stories for sure. So Agreed. I agree. 
Well, final comments. We'll get squid. No, I think uh, you guys did an excellent job. I enjoyed it uh, immensely. I know my wife did, obviously, because she wouldn't have been around to see a lot of that stuff. Uh, but you did a great job. I really enjoyed it, and I think it. I think it kind of maybe. I, I, you know, it's funny because I said to Mike and somebody else, I said, "Can you imagine if the current players watch that?" They would have went, holy cow, are we ever lucky, but we have now. <laughs> and, and they should be, yeah. you know, because yeah. I, mean, I think that tells a big story about what it was like in the 80s and what it's like now. And, you know, I, I would think that, you know, any hockey player in the NHL today has to be pretty thankful that they didn't have an owner like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, the other thing, too, is Squid, when, uh, uh, Squid told me a story. When, uh, when uh, Austin Matthews broke his single-season goal-scoring record, uh, the Leafs invited him down for the day, and he spent the day at the Leafs and all that. And so he went in, so they called him into the team meeting. Uh, Keith said, do you want to come to the meeting? I'm going to show some film. So he said, sure. So he sat in, and the players, and he goes, well, we've got a special guest today. We're going to show some highlights. So they started showing Rick to the players his goals and fights. Well, all the kids in the room were going, holy shit. You fought like that and scored 50 goals. How did you do that? Like they were blown away. I had no idea that this guy could fight like that and score 50 goals. A hey, squid. I mean, wasn't that that was just they were blown away by that. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I told him, I mean, that's just the way the game was back then. And if you didn't stick up for yourself, you were gonna get pushed around and and so I I said it was just normal. I said Everybody in the league played like that back in the 80s. And I said, yeah. the game's much different now, and, and you guys know that. I said, but that's just the way it was. Like 200 and some penalty minutes and 54 goals. That happened three times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, final comment, Michael, from you. Oh, I'm just uh... – you know, happy we got this. We got it over the finish line. Listen, it was it was a uh, it was a long journey. It's, so it's a it's a real highlight of my own career, and um, uh, having having a chance to you know sit down with so many great Leafs and and hear the story being told in the first person was really exciting. So fantastic and nice to nice to be here for what is our last podcast. Oh. Jason, oh, you feel privileged. Thank you, guys. Jason, how about you? Yeah, this was uh, this was a great uh, a great experience for me. Uh, like Mike said, it did. It took us uh, a long time to get this movie together, but uh, we're really really happy that people are enjoying it the way that they are. And uh, this has been a lot of fun to be here with you guys today. Uh, thanks so much for having us, guys. Well, listen, guys, I just want to tell you, as being a guy they call the – I didn't give myself that name, by the way. They call me the Ultimate Leaf fan. I said I thought you guys did a tremendous job in this. I think Thank we you. need to do more like this for to educate the new generation of Leaf fans that don't, don't know about the history of this iconic franchise. Wonderful, wonderful job. Love the documentary. And can't wait to see the new product coming up when you do the four-parter. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate so all We want to thank you guys so much for joining us today. 